and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Elise Bernlore Mizell, Acting Assistant Professor of Lawyering at NYU Law School. We will discuss her article, The Case for Downsizing the Corporate Attorney Client Privilege. So welcome to the show, Elise. Thank you. Thank for thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted. Uh, really excited to to chat with you after reading your excellent paper, which touched on so many of the questions that I and many, you know, junior attorneys at uh, White Shoe Law Firms and PR professors have thought about a lot. So I'm really delighted to kind of dig into this difficult question with you a, a little bit, but. For the benefit of listeners who might not have a kind of robust background in corporate uh, privilege related questions, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of in general what the attorney client privilege is and, and how it works in practice. Sure. Um, so as a little bit of preamble, I'll just note that I, I wrote this paper after a career of doing um, work as a corporate litigator and representing corporations, suing corporations and their agents. Um, and in my work, I saw a real logic to the privilege in the individual context. Um, and in the case of corporations, it drove me crazy because it didn't make any sense. So um, I wrote this paper as the paper I wished I had a chance to cite um, as a as a practicing lawyer, and I'm really excited to talk um, about this today because I really hope courts and legal academics um, pay attention to this really like conceptually rich um, topic. So privilege basics. Um, so the attorney-client privilege protects communications that are confidential between an attorney and a client for the purpose of facilitating legal advice. That's the basic definition. Um, Privilege developed um, uh, to protect certain relationships that were confidential, that were intimate, that there were public policy reasons to protect. So you had the attorney-client privilege first, um, but shortly thereafter, we got spousal privileges, we got um, priest-penitent privileges, we've got... um, privileges between a therapist and a patient. Um, And the idea is that these are relationships that as a public policy matter, we want to foster, we want to protect. So we're not going to make people come into court and testify as to communications um, that were um, exchanged in this context. Um, There's a fun case from 1875 that I cite in my paper um, (laughs) about whether a secret agent acting on behalf of Abraham Lincoln could bring an action um, on his wartime contract with the late president. And the Supreme Court explained in dicta that public policy forbids requiring the violation of confidences um, shared in the context of certain confidential relationships. So attorney clients, spouses, priest penitent, et cetera. So that's the privilege. It's developed in this individual context, and then it gets grafted um, onto corporations. Now, some of that uh, grafting is a little bit inelegant, um, a little bit assumed, a little bit post hoc justified. um, And privilege wasn't developed um, uh, around corporate relationships until much later. In fact, in a case called Radiant Burners in 1862, the court reasoned that it wasn't possible for corporations to have privilege um, because corporations um, were required to 
um, share their books and records um, with their shareholders under certain circumstances. So they couldn't possibly have um, truly confidential communications. It wasn't until uh, 1981 in Upjohn v. United States um, when the United States Supreme Court held um, that the privilege does extend to corporations. And it not only extends to corporations, it extends to communications between um, corporate counsel and all employees um, of corporations, so long as they meet the baseline expectations for privilege. So you've got, again, a confidential communication between an attorney and a client for the purpose of um, facilitating legal advice. The client is whole um, of the of the employees. The client is the corporation, but acts through all of these employees. Um, the justification here changes slightly too. Um, in Upjohn, the Supreme Court said uh, that the privileges justification is to promote full and frank communications with counsel so that clients can conform their conduct to the law. So we have this compliance rationale. We think that um, officers, directors, corporate employees are going to be um, able to have these full communications with their with their um, attorneys, and then we're going to have these great legal co- uh, communications, and then um, officers and directors and all the employees are going to go back and 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 always completely abide by the law um, because they won't be afraid um, that their communications are going to be revealed in court. Certain theoretical problems come up in the application of the corporate attorney-client privilege. Um, confidentiality is is a baseline one. Um, an essential ingredient of privilege is confidentiality. Um, corporations have to act through their agents. Their agents are officers, directors, HR reps, salespeople, truck drivers. A whole host of folks um, are now under the Upjohn framework. Um, and they all enjoy the protection of the privilege. So how is it still confidential? Um, I say in the paper, a California district court case where a judge refused to order the production of document retention notices sent to approximately 600 employees um, of eBay. Um, I struggle to see how that is truly confidential, how that promotes candor um, when we're disseminating communications that are presumably privileged um, to hundreds or thousands of people. Other theoretical problems, we've got shareholders who are beneficiaries of the corporation who own an interest, um, uh, but they're not presumptively entitled to privileged materials. However, they can get it if they show good cause. So it's kind of conditional. Um, Directors are presumptively entitled to the privilege, um, but the privilege is owned by the corporation, so it can later be waived. So if they enjoy the comfort and candor of that relationship, they can't rely on it staying uh, confidential. The the corporation can waive the privilege. Um, And relatedly, corporate control changes hands over time. So the privilege passes with corporate control. Um, And um, sometimes a hostile person or group can take over. Take the case of Elon Musk. The Twitter board last summer was likely talking to their lawyers about Elon Musk. Elon Musk now owns the corporate privilege over those communications, um, which clearly... Uh, you know, creates a little bit of tension because you're talking about your adversary and then that adversary comes to own the very communications um, about which he is a subject. Um, so those are some theoretical problems that come up um, in the in the creation of the privilege.
yeah, in the corporate it, context. It seems especially odd that in the corporate context, it would go even to individuals who don't have a fiduciary relationship with the corporation. I mean, what's their obligation to be full and frank if they aren't even a fiduciary? They, they don't have an obligation. Um, and in fact, I, I think what's interesting is that officers and directors do have this, this fiduciary duty, um, arguably under care mark. Um, there's an obligation to run your, um, your, uh, your corporation in a manner that complies with the law that flags the red flags. Um, it's funny because there's a tension in Upjohn warnings themselves. Um, when you are, uh, for listeners who don't know, um, when you are representing a corporation, if you're speaking to the employee of the corporation, you give what's called an Upjohn warning. An Upjohn warning warns the employee, I don't represent you. I represent the corporation. Now, do we think that that promotes candor? (laughs) I mean, do we think that the explicit flagging um, that the lawyer in the room is not there to serve your interests is going to make the person um, open up and spill everything? I, I don't think the privilege is doing its job. Um, in these circumstances, because it's unpredictable and because it protects communications where that candor is just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, just as a way of kind of further setting the stage for the different kinds of evidentiary privileges, could you talk a little bit about what the work product doctrine is and how it's different from the attorney-client privilege? Because I think oftentimes people tend to conflate the two when they're actually significantly uh, different from each other. Yeah, um, it's a great question. And it's something that is actually kind of messy across the case law, too. Uh, Courts conflate it as often um, as practitioners. Um, And the difference is um, the privilege protects communications um, between attorneys and clients. Um, The attorney work product protects a broader um, scope of materials. It protects documents. It protects things that you create. Um, but you must be creating them um, in anticipation of litigation. So you think you're about to get sued. You start to make a witness list of folks that you um, want to talk to. That's going to be covered by um, the attorney work product. Um, and so the attorney work product actually kind of um, covers a lot of the materials if you're dealing with something that's in anticipation of litigation that would also be covered by the privilege. Um uh, but it's limited to those in anticipation of litigation circumstances. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, what kind of problems do you see with the attorney-client privilege? Like theoretical problems, practical problems, sort of a mix of both. Like why ultimately do you think this is an issue that needs to be addressed, that we need a different way of looking at the doctrine than we've currently got? So uh, one of the things that happens with this really theoretically muddled um, doctrine um, is that it creates an environment um, that allows for a lot of over withholding in discovery. Uh, Now, I tend to think discovery is one of the most important um, components of our legal system. Um, It um, creates the um, universe of information that can be used in a lawsuit. And so when you're over withholding communications from discovery um, under a claim of privilege, 
um, that takes them outside of the realm of what can be fought about in court. Um, and let me explain quickly why um, over withholding is rampant. So um, privileged disputes mostly never see the inside of the court. Um, judges hate them. They get referred to magistrates or special masters. Um, they're expensive and they feel petty. Um, so from the start, parties exchange privilege logs. The way to challenge um, is to move to compel. Um, privilege logs are logs that list sort of basic documents about the, um, or excuse me, basic facts about the documents that are being withheld. Um, and so you get the privilege log from your adversary, you take a look at it, you see, oh, there's a um, an attorney, there's an agent of the attorney, there's really no way to assess um, whether or not it's a legitimate um, privileged conversation, uh, whether it's about um, legal advice as opposed to, say, business advice. Um, and so if you do want to challenge it, it sort of puts the burden on the challenger to bring a motion to compel. Um, and you're really taking a gamble because you have limited information. Um, the law on where to draw the line, say, business versus legal advice, is really fuzzy. Um, the Supreme Court took a case um on that this term that they ultimately dismissed as improvidently granted. But in that oral argument for that case, the judges really struggled with how or where to draw the line. Justice Gorsuch said, let's quantify privilege. Uh, let's say if it's 65% a legal purpose and you know 35% a business purpose, does that count? I mean, there's just not um, a really clear distinguishing sort of rule um, amongst these types of communication. So if you're a zealous advocate, if you're a lawyer, you're going to see there's some sort of legal flavor to the to the communication and you're going to withhold it. Um, and so the only parties that can really challenge this are the parties who have the finances, who have the resources to do it. It's worth noting that in grand jury took place in the context of the government, a well-resourced party, um, and, and an unnamed corporate law firm um, who had the resources to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, so, so that's one of the big problems, um, I think, is that you have this real tendency to overwithhold. Mm. So as a, just, just to recap, like essentially as a practical matter, whatever the kind of theoretical justifications of attorney-client privilege in the corporate context will be, what they practically result in is the ability to withhold a large number of documents that that really ought to be produced because, because the other yeah. side is entitled to see them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, and to what extent is that a function of kind of theoretical problems with the attorney-client privilege itself? I mean, are, how how do the practical issues and the theoretical issues sort of intersect with each other, or is it just abuse on the part of corporations and their representatives? So we've got a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, um, but I think part of the issue is that um, the theory is pretty muddled. Right. Um, what does it mean to be confidential? Um, what does it mean um, to be a, a business purpose versus a legal purpose um, under a shareholder primacy regime? Arguably, everything is a business purpose, even a legal purpose. Um, and so without clear answers um, as to what would qualify, um, you have uh, a really fuzzy um, 
doctrine. Um, so that'll lead to the tendency to overwithhold. I also think um, that when you have uh, agents of a corporation who may or may not be waiving the privilege because they don't understand it, we're still going to, to knee-jerk withhold um, because um, the tendency is to um, to do what's best for your client um, and, and let the other side challenge it. So, I mean, given all these theoretical and practical concerns, why isn't the right answer to just eliminate the corporate attorney-client privilege entirely and require corporations to produce everything? So I have um, a theory answer for you and I have a practice answer for you. Um, And my theory answer for you is we as um, a society have decided these relationships are important. Our courts have said over and over and over again that these full and frank Um, communications are important for a compliance purpose. So I think we should find a way to make the reality of corporate privilege match um, the corporate privilege that was envisioned um, in Upjohn. So that's my theoretical answer. And my practical answer is, in practice, I've seen it. Um, I've seen the moment where you sit across the table um, from someone who's seeking Um, legal advice and just looking for the best way out and is going to be honest because you have that intimate um, moment where you can um, have a really serious um, grappling with, with how to, how to address the legal issues. Um, So, so I give you my practitioner answer and my theoretical answer. I think both land on the same um, proposal, which is that you need something smaller. Um, you need something that looks more like actually the historical origins, these intimate um, relationships, a, a, a smaller context, a more clearly defined um, context um, for the corporate privilege. Well, so historically, there have been proposals to kind of adopt a narrower version of the attorney-client privilege. In fact, in Upjohn, that's what one of the parties was, in fact, proposing, and the court considered several different possible ways to construct the attorney-client privilege and ultimately went the very broadest one it possibly could. Maybe you could talk a little bit about alternatives to the existing model that have been considered in the past and maybe like why they weren't adopted and whether you think they might have been better. So... um in Upjohn, what the court um, was considering was something called the control group test. Um, and that was um, a version of the privilege that only encompassed um, agents who had authority or, or control over a particular subject matter. Um, the Upjohn court found that was kind of unworkable because of its ambiguity. Um, because it was too unclear as to whether or not a certain agent with some amount of authority would fall within or without the privilege. Um, It's a little bit like um, the same kind of ambiguity that we have now with, you know, choice of law. There's no telling which choice of law will ultimately apply when you're having a particular communication, whether you're going to get sued and that communication will be relevant in Kentucky where you're sitting or Pennsylvania where I'm sitting. Um, Or, you know, uh, it's 
you know, lots of, there are lots of times um, when it's not clear whether a um, communication is even legal in nature, whether it's too close to that um, legal line versus that business line. So an unpredictable privilege um, is a problem. And, and, and the Upjohn court recognized that. So the, the uh, control group test, that sort of folks with authority model didn't work. Um, the model that I propose in the paper um, is actually even narrower than the control group model. And let me explain why I think it's better. There are certain theoretical problems you can't get around. You're always going to have agents acting for a corporation. So some of those agency problems are just unavoidable. If you're going to have a corporate privilege, you are going to have agency problems. However, um, the unpredictability problems, um, the potential conflict problems um, that I talk about in my paper, the overwithholding problems can all be remedied by moving to a really narrow version of the privilege, putting um, uh, the privilege purely within um, the context of what I call in the paper a privileged communications committee. Um, so this would be something like an audit committee, a committee of the board of directors um, with the specific um, charge and authority um, to consult with counsel um, for the purpose of seeking legal advice. It makes it really clear what we're here to do. We're here to do legal, not business advice. Um, these are the agents who are um, acting on behalf of the corporation, seeking legal advice. It's clear that you're seeking legal advice. Um, it's clear, um, when and, uh, where, you know, when you're reviewing a privilege log, um, the communications within a committee, um, are going to be much easier to segment, um, than sort of any communication with a lawyer for the corporation, um, and an individual. Um, so how would that work in practice? Who would the members of a of a legal communications committee be, ideally or in practice? And I guess one question I had was also like how far that privilege would extend. Like, what about say, for example, communications between the legal communications committee and the other decision makers on the corporate board, for example, who would have to discuss and implement those recommendations? So. Uh, first question, membership. Um, corporations um, are very familiar with using um, committees, either special committees, um, sort of the standard committees that are required um, under a variety of laws, like an audit committee or a nom and gov committee. Um, and in fact, you know, a general counsel or an outside counsel could help choose who goes on the committee, set a procedure and screen for conflicts um, so that um, there's no risk that um, somebody on the uh, uh, Privileged Communications Committee has um, a conflict with corporate interests such that there would be a concern about waiving the privilege. Um, as to your second question about how far it goes, so... My proposal is actually really narrow, right? Um, my proposal says that that's the that's the universe. When those people, that committee, in their capacity as the committee, talk to their lawyers, whether they're inside or outside, um, that's what the privilege is going to cover. So um, they'll get advice, 
and then they'll act on it. And when they act on it, um, you know, in disseminating um, directions to the rest of the organization, to the rest of the firm, that's not going to be privileged. Um, there are duties um, that arise from fiduciary duties um, that arise from Delaware law um, that say you have to run your um, your corporation in a way that um, complies with the law. So they have an independent obligation to seek it, legal advice and they have a legal uh, and they have a legal obligation to act on legal advice. Mm-hmm. So under your model, then, uh, if, I, if I'm understanding it correctly, a communication between the Legal Communications Committee and other agents of the corporation would, in effect, be a communication with like a third party and therefore not a privileged communication. That's right. That's right. So in this model, the, the Privileged Communications Committee is the client. Everybody else is a third party. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, one of the things I really like about the proposal kind of stems from something that's always bothered me about privilege in the corporate context, especially given the theoretical justification you mentioned earlier, right? Because it seems to me there's this real tension. We say on one level, well, we have to have the corporate privilege in order to encourage the agents of the corporation to engage in full and frank communications with the attorneys. And yet the corporation owns the privilege, which means it can waive it at any time, which means if they actually know what they're doing, there's no incentive to full and frank with the attorney. So it either can't work or it has to be misleading to the employee who's providing information to the attorney against their best interests. I mean, I guess on some level, it's different when it comes to fiduciaries because they have an independent duty to act in the corporation's interests as compared to their own. But obviously, if it's going to be incriminating to them, they're still going to have countervailing incentives not to do it. And that's why we have conflict of interest. There's just so so many kind of theoretical complications that make it seem really incoherent. And it seems like you sort of resolve a lot of those by removing many agents from the sphere of privilege in the first place. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's really the tension that I'm trying to resolve is we can't make the corporate privilege perfect because of the nature of the firm, because of the nature of corporations and the corporate form. But we can make it better. Um, and I don't see a universe in which the corporate privilege is eliminated entirely. Um, I think if you look at who filed amicus briefs um, in in the Inri grand jury case, the powerful and the mighty have um, done all they can to protect the corporate privilege. And I don't think that there's a universe in which it goes away. But I do think if we're going to have it, let's make it logically coherent. Let's make it serve its aims. And while Corporate, individual corporations agents are never going to like individually enjoy the protection of the privilege. A smaller, more intimate, more clearly delineated context, um, rather than oh, a lawyer happens to be in the room, this conversation may or may not be privileged, um, is more likely to to have sort of the hallmarks of that that intimate relationship that originally justified the privilege in the first place. Mm-hmm. So if we narrow the scope of corporate attorney-client privilege in the way you're suggesting, how would that affect the salience of alternative doctrines like the work product doctrine or even just kind of confidentiality and the duty of confidentiality more generally? So 
Actually, uh, what's great uh, about um, the elimination of the privilege is it doesn't automatically put like corporate secrets on the front page of the New York Times. Um, So officers have a confidentiality obligation. Attorneys have a confidentiality obligation under their rules of professional conduct. Um, And so we're not um, talking about agents who have even the ability um, to go blabbing about corporate secrets without breaching a duty they have. Um, the work product doctrine will protect things that are created or prepared in anticipation of litigation. So you're still going to have corporations with the ability to handle um, and manage um, oncoming litigation. Um, internal litigation departments at corporations, outside counsel are still going to be able to like take meeting notes and protect them under the attorney work product. And it's useful to remember what the privilege protects in the first place. It's communications between attorneys and clients for the purpose of facilitating legal advice. So we're not dealing with underlying facts. Underlying facts are not privileged. Pre-existing documents are not privileged. These are, we're all within the bounds um, of litigation beforehand, but they, um, in today's privileged uh, scenarios get um, hidden behind um, the attorney-client privilege through litigation gamesmanship. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, obviously, confidential information would still be discoverable, but it seems like in the model you're proposing, the work product doctrine might end up doing a lot more work than it currently does. And in fact, it struck me when reading your paper that, like, for example, Pretty much all the communications at, that were at, at issue in Upjohn would have been protected by the work product doctrine anyway without privilege. And in fact, it seems like a more appropriate route to take with respect to materials of that kind. Totally. Um, and if you look at like Hickman v. Taylor um, and the case where um, the work product originated, um, we're concerned about attorneys being able to do their jobs um, and prepare for litigation, protect their client. Um, All of those purposes are served through the work product. Um, The thing about the work product is it's not... um, uh, uh, impenetrable, right? If there's a need for uh, the the work product and there's no other way to get it, um, a court can find that um, the work product privilege um, can be overcome. Yeah, right. But I mean, that only goes to the facts anyway, right? Yep. As we know, and like, as you said earlier, the facts of the matter aren't privileged anyway. Yep. So, I mean, it just, yeah, it struck me that it was an interesting sort of like there is an alternative evidentiary privilege that would do a lot of the work and maybe do it in a more theoretically coherent way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it gives you grounding. Like here's a litigation. You have to be able to identify it in your privilege log. You can't just throw anything in that happens to have a lawyer there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Well, Elise, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this excellent paper. I I really think it's a cool proposal and it got me thinking about attorney-client privilege in the corporate context and how it ought to work and what always bothered me so much about it, both when I was practicing and and also when I try to teach it in my PR class, because it's, it's really difficult to kind of present it to students in a way that makes sense, perhaps because it doesn't really make sense. 
That's what I would say. It doesn't. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. I really appreciate it. Oh! 